I don't know exactly where to start. We'll start with a title. Uh, so I think we're, we're calling this today Victorious Prayer. Victorious Prayer, and eventually we'll get to prayer. Uh, but I want to I want to lay the groundwork for uh, and just kind of continue to provoke you, as we did last week, to live out of victory, to live in victory, to live from victory, uh, to live out of victory, uh, and, and to recognize this is what we as believers are called to. Uh, today's song, we rallied around that song in the Lord. It's nothing we pre-rehearsed, by the way, and nothing. We don't write our lines. We don't, we don't uh, teach or preach from um, manuscript. Uh, so we just trust the Holy Spirit to do his thing, and, and uh, our ambition is to just say what he's saying and do what he's doing. Uh, but that song today wouldn't even be uh, possible if it weren't maybe for some of what we're going to talk about today. And, of course, that song today about uh, his victory and him being champion uh, fits well into some of my remarks today as we think about the church, as we think about theology, as we think about who we are, as we think about the pr- uh, prayer, the, the role of prayer, the importance of prayer, and, uh, and why we pray. Uh, so uh, that, that, was a, that was a good song, I think, as a, as a good theological prelude to kind of uh, move us into things. Because we sang that, you, you sang that with great vim and vigor. I heard you. And you were engaged, and did you sense that the Lord was here? How many of you sensed the Lord was here? So, you know, just just thinking about that, you know, just thinking about the shift, even the shift in the church, you know, the church has shifted. How many of you have been uh, a Christian hanging out in the institutional church for 20 years or longer? Hands up everywhere. 20 years or longer. So you've maybe recognized the shift in the church. The church has shifted. So, so past 20 years ago, our songs were oriented around holding the fort. Our songs were oriented around getting through. Our songs were oriented uh, around heaven, and we can't wait to get there. So... You know, one of my favorites growing up, I played the trumpet in the orchestra. Four of you laughed. That's good. I thought I would get some response out of that. It was the last trump. I was playing the last trump. So, you know, uh, one of my favorite songs was When We All Get to Heaven, What a Day of Rejoicing That Will Be. How many of you sang that? Okay, there's a couple hands right there. Uh, so, I mean, this, if you think about the shift theologically, what's happening is as we sing these victorious songs, we don't realize that actually God, Jehovah Sneaky, is twisting your theology. So he's, he's moving your theology out of defeat into victory. Uh, so this is, this is part of what's going on is that a lot of times what happens is we start singing proper theology before we start preaching it. or And so the singing is moving us toward proper theology. But if you think about it, some of the theology that we sing right now actually contradicts what we teach or what we believe 
or what our seminaries have taught or believe. Because current, for instance, current, uh, current eschatology, current, uh, current theology on where we're at in terms of the dispensation that we're now in, most of the current evangelical train of thought that we have actually right now uh, says that we can't have victory until Christ comes in a physical form, lands on the Mount of Olives, splits the mountain open, and begins to rule in person, literally, from Jerusalem. And until then, we actually can't have what we just sang about in the, last, in, in the song. Now, you might not know that, but that's what our seminaries are teaching. And so it's interesting how God's shifting our theology and our narrative, and uh, he's moving us to begin to realize and recognize that actually Jesus is reigning right now from Jerusalem. It's not the physical Jerusalem he's reigning from. Galatians 4.26 says, the Jerusalem above is our mother, and that's where he's reigning from. So today will be another day of messing with your theology a little bit. Uh, and in doing so, hopefully uh, moving you toward a more victorious position in prayer. Because if we actually believe some of what we've been taught over the years in our theology, then we actually, subconsciously, we don't know why we should pray. Because, because God's going to do what he wants to do anyway. And what he's declared he's going to do is he's going to let evil get worse and worse. And things are going to go from bad to worse. And then it's all going to blow up. But potentially, uh, he's going to whisk us out of here in what we call the rapture right before it all does. Are you a pre-trib, a mid-trib, or a post-trib? Are you a pan-trib? How many pan-trib people in the building today? It's all going to pan out in the end. That's the pan trip. So I brought this book to the platform with me because these should be sold out. We should be helping Harold Eberly uh, become more famous. Because this is a book you should read because until I write mine, this is the best book I know of right now. On a victorious perspective on the end times. How many of you have read the book? One, two, three. Some of you have looked at it. How many of you have walked by it? How many of you have thought about reading the book? Okay, well, good. Well, if you really love Pastor Dwayne, if you love Pastor Joel, you will load the dishwasher. If you love Pastor Joel, after she cooks really good food, you will wash the dishes. But if you love Pastor Dwayne, and you think you're called to New Horizon, you should spend two Starbucks purchases on a book and read this book. Victorious Eschatology, we have it back there on the shelves. And if you're flocked back there this morning, there will be no one to help you. And so, uh, Angela. Angela will linger back there in case two of you want to trade in two Starbucks 
purchases for Viscount. It's probably three Starbucks purchases. I think it's 15. Oh, it's 20. Three and a half Starbucks purchases. And then here, I want to, this is a shameless plug for another book. And you know what? Tightwad me, I buy these used and sell them to you. Frugal. Frugal. This is the guy that rocked the world during the Jesus people movement. Of which, that was, as Mario Murillo was saying, that was a lamb revival. We're about to have a lion revival. Dennis Bennett was an Episcopal rector. You know what a rector is? He wrecked everybody. That's like a father. That's like a pastor. That's like a leader. He was, a, he, was a, he was the pastor of an Episcopalian church in Southern California. He got baptized in the Holy Spirit and began to experience, walk in, revel in, and uh, enjoy all nine of the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. Healing, tongues, prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, miracles. And so, anyway, his church, this Episcopalian church, became famous worldwide, like the Toronto Revival. It became famous worldwide, and they couldn't shut it down. And uh, the Episcopalians were not happy. And thousands were coming and getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it was like an Azusa Street Revival. And so the Episcopalian church transferred him to Seattle, Washington, where they thought they could hide him in this little bitty dead church in Seattle, Washington. So guess what? The revival came with him, and it blew up. And uh, this is the book that he wrote during all of that. If you don't have this book, Pastor Duane sells used copies for $7. Irresistible. One and a half Starbucks cups. $7. The Holy Spirit in you. And if you are not walking in a continual baptism of the Holy Spirit and experiencing manifest through your life the supernatural power of God, you got to spend $7 and buy this book. And then you get with our prophetic team and you ask them to pray that you would receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then you get wrecked. And then you start wrecking this messed up world with the rest of us. Amen? All right, shameless plugs. God bless you. We'll see you back there with Angela. Do we take credit? We can take a debit or a credit with an offering envelope. We can, we can take car titles. I mean, just anything you've got. <laughs> anything you've got handy, bring it back there and she'll, she'll swap it out. Okay, listen up. Here we go. New Horizon, and I'm going to be kind of gentle and cautious because I'm so not omniscient. You know what omniscient means? He knows everything. Only God knows everything. But New Horizon takes a victorious theological viewpoint when it comes to the end times. This stance is, it somewhat takes its position from the understanding that the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was the fulfillment of Matthew 24 and the tribulation. So we aren't looking for a coming tribulation, though the world will tribulate as God subdues all of the enemies of Jesus and puts them under the feet of Jesus. 
New Horizon leans toward a all-millennial position. Though we aren't fully all-millennial, maybe, uh, and we lean toward a preterist position. Though we aren't fully preterist, we would say we're partial preterist, as he describes in that book, and we aren't really fully all-millennial. You really can't necessarily put us in a box, but if, you knew, if we knew everything, if we were omniscient, you could probably put us in a box, but maybe the box hasn't been named. The best box to put us in usually is the Bible box. We tend to be biblical. Is that all right? All millennial position means, uh, millennia means a thousand. Though it sounds like a million, it actually means a thousand. And uh, dispensational theology that was introduced at the end of the 1800s, so especially through the Schofield Bible, um, has, uh, uh, and other theologian as well, has us waiting for a 1,000-year period. Have you heard of the millennium or the millennial reign of Jesus? So that has us waiting for a, one, a literal, literal 1,000-year period where Jesus will come and physically reign on the earth uh, and uh, subdue uh, all of his enemies. So, that's, so we tend to be more all-millennial. All-millennial doesn't mean there won't be a 1,000 years. An all-millennial position means that we don't believe the millennia, that 1,000-year period, is necessarily a, a, a literal 1,000 years. It's more of a figurative 1,000 years. And an all-millennialist believes that that could have started now. That with the advent of Jesus and the victory of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the defeat of Satan and the casting him out of heaven because he was there in man's authority and with the exaltation of Jesus, who is the perfect man, we'll talk more on that as we go if we have time, that actually that was the beginning of the kingdom. That was the beginning. And the kingdom age, the church age, the millennium age is actually that which we're potentially, living in right now. And you don't have that purview necessarily because you've been under the influence since about 1880 or 1890, you and the evangelical church in America especially, or in the Western world, has been under the influence of an anti-millennial view or a literalist millennial view that Jesus will come back literally, he'll reign literally a thousand years and that we really can't experience great victories, even what we just sang about, until that happens. So, that isn't the position of New Horizon. Is that right? For instance, uh, with regard to the kingdom age, the kingdom of heaven age, the kingdom of God age, uh, this age that may be synonymous with the 1,000-year period, Mark 9, 1 says, uh, this is Jesus, and he said to them, truly, I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So, I mean, we could, you know, we could give you scripture after scripture after scripture. I'm giving you just simply some tasty tidbit morsels, kingdom nuggets of goodness 
so that you understand a little bit more about where your dear pastor is coming from. All millennials regard the thousand-year period as figurative, and it may not be a literal thousand years. For instance, Psalms 50.10, my parents quoted it to me often, and I'm not sure why, but the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You ever heard that one? What, what happened to the 1,001 hill? Does he only own the cattle on a thousand hills? Could the Lord possibly own the cattle on 2,000 hills? Could he own all cattle on all hills? So there's a lot of this figurative speech in the Bible to let us know, to kind of give us this, this viewpoint theologically that God's in charge or God has a lot or God owns a bunch or it actually all belongs to him. Another one that we use in Restored Life, Recover Life material, is we, we use Exodus 20 quite a bit to talk about how generational seed can be passed on to one generation or generational curses or generational troubles or generational... But in that same scripture, it actually says also that the blessings are passed to a thousand generations. Exodus 20, remember that one? Exodus 20, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, the foreign gods, for I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Does that mean after a thousand generations? No more blessing. 1,001, that's the end of the blessing. No, he's trying to say here that when you walk uprightly with the Lord, that you are releasing God to bless your children. That God will bless your children. And they'll inherit a blessing that they didn't earn because you walked with the Lord. And when he says a thousand generations, he just is saying... A bunch until I'm done. Ad infinitum. It just, it just, who knows how long? That's what he's saying. So this is kind of the position uh, of an all-millennial position. All millennials hold that while Christ's reign is spiritual in nature, at the end of this age, at the end of the church age, there will be a return. We don't, we don't deny, I say we, and again, I'm kind of... I try to read the Bible and then sometimes you kind of figure out what camp you partially belong to. But again, the biggest camp that we want to belong to is the Bible camp, right? So the all-millennialist position recognizes that the kingdom is spiritual mainly in nature, but at the end of the church age, the kingdom age, Christ will return. He'll return in person. There will be a second coming. Uh, but we're working toward victory like we talked about last week out of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. As we talked out of 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end when he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be subdued is death. So we gave you lots of verses last week. Hebrews 1, 13, Father said, sit here at my right hand until all of your 
enemies are put under your feet until I put all of your enemies under your feet. So these are, these are scriptures. We see this is a growing kingdom, but Christ will return in final judgment and establish a permanent reign in the new heaven and the new earth. Um, some thoughts about that, as I mentioned uh, just briefly, Galatians 4, uh, all millennials hold to, a, and preterists as well, partial preterists, that Jesus is presently reigning from heaven. And I'm going to get into that as we think about prayer just a little bit. That's Galatians 4, if you want to read it on your own. I'm not going to read it right now. Um, uh, some other, some other th- thoughts here real quick. Because uh, I think that's that's a good somewhat summary. All millennialists teach that the binding of Satan, Revelation 12, described there, has already occurred, and that uh, he's been prevented from deceiving the nations. That there's already a binding that's taken place. Uh, when you have two competing church views, this is very interesting. Because uh, I saw, oh, I don't want to say that. Um, but we, have, we do have two competing church views going on. We have one church view that is very disempowering. There's one church view, and you can visit churches in any local city, local community, and you will find churches that have a very disempowering gospel. So maybe absent of the gifts of the Spirit, maybe absent of the power of the Spirit, maybe absent of the power of prayer, maybe absent of victory. Uh, maybe absent of, you know, we can taste of salvation now. We can be forgiven. But true victory is not until after the second coming, until after we're, we're raptured. And if, there, if you're pre-tribulation, then you're going to be taken away for seven years. There's going to be this terrible tribulation, and uh, the world's going to be messed up really good. And then afterwards, you come back with, with Jesus to rule and reign. So you can find all of these different views. The problem is with some of this is it really, it harms, it harms our perspective. Like A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is the way you think about God. It harms our faith. It harms our prayer. It harms our hope. It even makes us irrelevant somewhat in the world. I think it even harms our salvation. We used to scare people to come to the Lord. So during the heavy tribulation period, uh, we had movies on the guillotine. We had movies on the mark of the beast. We had movies on, uh, we had, you know, we had movies on, we had all this stuff was going on. We were scaring people into the kingdom. I don't know if their salvations lasted. Uh, but today's generation needs something to live for. God's shifting the theology, and he's shifting us into much more of a dominion, overcoming, restorative, lion of Judah theology, which actually is more appealing to a young person than a defeatist theology. Just food for thought. Uh, And that isn't why we choose a theology, though. We want to choose a theology because the Holy Spirit's actually showing us, leading us, giving us revelation about a theology, moving us maybe into illumination, right? That's why we choose a theology. We don't choose a theology because it's, it's more attractive. But... The truth usually is more attractive, and it may be able to hold a person against the torrents of life better. Is that okay? 
Jesus, uh, here's part of the, the partial preterist or the preterist. Um, by, the word, by the way, the word preterism uh, comes, from, it comes from a Latin word, praetor, which means that it's a past issue. In other words, it's already been fulfilled. So this is where preterism comes from in terms of end-time theology. It means that a preterist, somewhat like an amillennialist, believes that many of these prophecies, especially the prophetic word out of Matthew 24, the tribulation has already been fulfilled. We're not moving toward it. It's behind us. Uh, so that's where that comes from. It, some of these things we haven't heard before, but it's, it's not too complicated. So the view is that Jesus has bound Satan. Jesus is the perfect man. He's defeated Satan. He's empowered those who believe in him also to bind him in his works and release the promises made to Jesus, the perfect man, into the earth. And progressively, this will be fulfilled. Does that ring a bell to kind of New Horizons atmosphere? I'm going to read you a passage. I, I find it interesting to find some of this stuff in the Bible that's happening, that's declared before the end of this age, before the rapture or the second coming, before the conversion of humanity into a glorified body. I find it interesting to find passages like this. And these passages, I think, speak a lot to uh, the age that we're in. And then they speak to, I think, the growing hope or the hope that we can have and hold on to. Uh, Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, 17. See, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will, no, will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant but lives but a few days, nor an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will be thought to be a mere child. The one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwellings. So notice he's talking about something before he wraps this all up. Why am I assuming that? Because he's talking about death. So he's talking about death still, so people still die. So this is before a final period, whatever after this age, whatever you want to call it. If you want to call it a millennium or whatever you want to call it. So before this is all wrapped up with the second coming of the Lord, this is, this is something that he foresees happening. And so I foresee in this somewhat with Ephesians 4, this growing church, this growing faith, these, these people that walk in, because he says in Ephesians 4, we read it last week, 11 through 15, that the prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, apostles, that's all going to continue until there is a generation that walk in the full stature that belongs to Jesus, the full stature of the faith that belongs to Jesus. So remember I told you last week, there is a water-walking generation coming. 
not with wakeboards and skis. There's a water walking generation coming. So I foresee also that the length of years is growing as righteousness grows and as the stature of who we are in Jesus grows within us. As our identity becomes more secure in who he's made us to be as miraculous sons and daughters, the true anointed ones, then length of years even extends. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will the days of my people. What's that? What's that? How long do trees live? So, you know, righteousness has always been married to the tree of life and length of days. So as the earth is populated with more righteous people, as we begin to come into who we are as the righteousness of God in Christ, what's going to happen? My chosen ones will enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain. They will not bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord and they and their descendants with them. Interesting stuff. Maybe that's enough, but if you're taking notes, write down 2 Peter 3, and uh, I want you to jot that down. Um, because it's interesting, 2 Peter 3 talks about the day of the Lord that they foresee was coming, by the way. They called the judgment coming on Jerusalem, the coming judgment on Jerusalem, who were the aggressors against the Christians. They called it the day of the Lord. Let me pick it up, 2 Corinthians, because this is interesting, because these believers who were under great persecution by Jewish rejectors of the gospel, they knew what Matthew 24 was about. They knew what Matthew 23 was about. They knew a coming judgment was coming upon Jerusalem. They knew the temple system would be shut down. They walked with Jesus for 40 days, and he expanded the kingdom to them. After the resurrection, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of understanding they had that our modern-day fiction books don't give us when we think about this stuff. Verse 10, 2 Peter 3, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to, live in, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed its coming. They actually were looking forward to this stuff. Let it come, Lord. It's going to be terrible. Now, why would Christians in the first century be looking forward to the day of the Lord? Because they knew this was the destruction of those that rejected the gospel. That day will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in heat. Again, figurative. Everything shifted, and Satan was cast out of the heavens. Everything was shifting. 
But in keeping with his promise, this is the verse I want you to see, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness swells. Peter saw on the other side of that which happened from A.D. 66 to A.D. 70, most specifically that period from 68 to 70, Peter saw on the other side of that. These living in that contemporary moment saw that on the other side of the destruction of the temple system, there would come forth and break out a new heavens and a new earth. Same language we just read about in Isaiah 65. Same language many theologians don't want you to think about in today's thinking. They don't want you to think. The enemy doesn't want you to think that you live in a highly empowered season instead of a disempowered season, that you have the authority of Jesus, that you are victorious, that he is ruling and reigning right now. He's calling the shots as the supreme man right now from the heavens. Now, how does this affect us in prayer? For one, for one, if we look at this theologically, it shifts our thinking. It shifts our whole perspective. It, it begins to line up and agree with this understanding that Satan truly is defeated. And truly, progressively, we will see the enemies of Christ put under our feet. That we have hope. We have hope against every enemy. We have hope against hatred and racism and drugs and poverty and division. We have hope against all of that. Why? Because he is who is supreme has defeated Satan. And he's empowering us to walk and work that out in time and in space right here in our generation. And progressively, it's going to happen. Progressively, it's going to happen. Progressively, it's going to happen. Your prayers are not fruitless. Now, I want to talk about prayers specifically. I have three minutes left. Wow. Isn't that great? So you know what that means. Three closings is what that means. <laughs> Go over to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. The other thing that I don't know that we think about um, very much, uh, but as you're on your way to Matthew, we might as well go to, uh, let's see if I can find it, Psalm 115, 16. On your way to Matthew, let's go to Psalm 115, 16. We know this. We know that the earth was given to the sons of men. There's even a parable about that. Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard. And the vineyard keepers essentially had the lease on the earth. So we've been given, we were given, mankind, we were given the earth. We were given responsibility over the earth. We were given a position of lordship over the earth. We abdicated our leadership. We abdicated our authority. We abdicated our superiority. We abdicated what we were called to do, our responsibility. We abdicated it over to Satan when we became his servant and obeyed him in the garden. That was his access back into heaven because he'd been kicked out of heaven. 
But God so believed in what he was about to do with mankind that he brings man and forms him on the very void and formless globe where he had kicked Satan to. But when first Adam believed, submitted, yielded to, and obeyed the word of that serpent, then that empowered the serpent to rule over mankind, become the prince of the power of the air, the sovereign one over the spiritual atmosphere of the air, and it made us subservient to him. So Jesus had to come and take on manhood, Philippians 2. He had to strip himself. He had to become a man. He had to take on this servitude position, even to the point of becoming a man, that he might deliver us who are humans. Humanity was his access into deliverance. He came to do what the first Adam failed to do. He's called the last Adam. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's called the last Adam. He comes to do what the first Adam failed to do, and in doing so, then we have to realize we don't talk much about his manhood, but his resurrection to the Father and his representation of us right now, and I'm already moving into my first closing, is in his humanity, it's not in his divinity. Now, don't, confuse, don't get confused. He has a glorified body. You'll have one too. But his glorified body doesn't negate that he represents you and is existing now in both his divinity and his humanity. Now, this gives him his humanity, though he resurrected, his humanity is what gives him authority to rule over the earth. It's his humanity that gives him that authority to rule over the earth. He's in charge of the earth, not because of his divinity, because of his humanity. His perfect, righteous vindicated, the word says that he was vindicated by the Spirit. And when he was vindicated by the Spirit, then he was raised from the dead. Death could not hold him. And this is why when we pray, not only do we pray in his name, but prayer must agree with him. The supreme, the sovereign, the boss, the Lord. He's not just like the Lord. Of the, you know, you know I, didn't grow, I didn't know this stuff growing up, right? I, I, this is, I, I hope this helps you, but, but, you know, I knew him as Lord, but I thought of him as like Lord because of his divinity. I thought of him as Lord of everything and, and creator of everything, but yet he's not in charge of the earth. Obviously, we're in charge of the earth. We're doing a bad job, too. But the lordship that we need to recognize him in that shifts our prayers as well is the lordship of his humanity. Because it's his humanity, Psalm 115, 16, it's his humanity that 
gives him the authority in the earth because the earth belongs to the sons of men. Are you getting this? Does this make any sense at all? So when we pray, this is interesting, but when we pray, this is the role of the Holy Spirit is to find out. Can I read two more verses before we close? The role of the Holy Spirit is to, to tell us what Jesus is up to. To show us what he's up to, to tell us what he's up to. To take truth and expose it to us and get it to our hearts so that we can pray according, so that we can actually be in union with him. We are in union with him. If you're praying prayers that aren't in union with him, wow, it's a waste of time. Right? John 16, 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Now, this is relevant and important because not because Jesus is this really cool God, and he's like even better than the mythical gods of the Greeks, and, and because he, he's like in charge of everything, and he's divine. This is important because he is a man. He, as the supreme, righteous, perfect man, has authority to rule over the entire world, the earth, over all humanity, because of his perfection, because of his righteousness because of his supremacy as a man. And so it's important that we hear from the Holy Spirit what, the, what Jesus is saying. And the only way we can hear that, the only way we can be tuned into that is by the Holy Spirit. So when you turn the worship music on in your car or when you have your, I don't know how much time you have in the morning, 30 minutes, or you have a, a date with God in the morning, you have some courtship with him, uh, in prayer, and you got some worship on. Uh, the goal, the goal is not for him to hear you. The goal is for you to hear him. It's for you to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying because it's only as you come into unity with what the Holy Spirit is saying that Jesus is saying that your prayers will have power. One more verse, um, if the worship team could come. Trying to teach Bible school seminarian graduates in 35 minutes is not good. Remember the disciples said, how should we pray? And they wanted to know how to pray. And so Jesus says, pray this way. And it's a theme around here. It's a theme at New Horizon. It's a theme at Bethel. It's a theme at many churches that are in tune with the Holy Spirit right now. He says, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the NIV. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By the way, he didn't say, uh, I'm going to tell you how to pray. 
uh, and this will not apply until I come back in person. But this, I'm just going to give you a couple thoughts for a future generation. Pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that way, uh, not you that are listening to me right now. I'm talking to you that may read this in two or three thousand years. That isn't what it says. They said, teach us how to pray. And he says, here's how to pray. And as we often say here, don't pray to get off of the earth. Pray to get heaven to the earth. And then there's a passage, right? Go ahead and stand with me. There's a passage in Matthew 16, 19, where he says to the disciples, he says this, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say, I'm going to give a future generation the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He said, he didn't say, I'm going to tell you something that will not apply to you. But if you write this down and put it in some scriptures, in about 2,000, 2,500 years, I'm not sure when, can't tell you exactly. Somebody's going to read this and it's going to work for them. I'm going to give them the keys to the kingdom of heaven. No, no, he said to his disciples, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, whatever you bind shall be that which is bound. And if you bind that which is bound, it shall become that which is bound. So in other words, we have this union with heaven. We have this union with heaven. You got your communion with you? Love, can you help me with mine? We have this union with heaven. We bind what has been bound. And then he says, if you will loose that which is loosed, then it shall become loosed. It's this union with heaven. He's speaking directly to those listening. Why? Because he was beginning a season. He was beginning a period of ruling and reigning on the earth. This is why uh, the most important thing that I do every morning is I get up and find a place with the Lord. It's there that he feeds me. It's there that I partner with him. It's there that I hear from him. It's there that I say, because I've become his voice in the earth. He doesn't have another voice but mine. The Holy Spirit rides on the vocal cords of your mouth in agreement with Jesus. So the most important thing that I can do every single morning, there's nothing more important, nothing more important is to get in a spot, get in a place where I hear what he's saying where I hear what he's saying, and I rehearse what I know I've heard him say. And then in 
divine union with him, a union that he's accomplished for me by bringing me into the Godhead. I get in agreement. My prayers get in agreement. And my prayers reflect kingdom of God come. Kingdom of God come. Whatever the topic is, What's he saying about the news today? What's he saying about media? What's he saying about government? What's he saying about education? What's he saying about my family? What's he saying about our finances? What's he saying? What's he saying? What's he saying? What's he saying and what's he said? Kingdom of God come. Will of God. Will of God. Will of God. Invade. 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 What a privilege we have, church. What a crazy, 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 crazy privilege we have. We have a victorious privilege to partner with the victor, to partner with the supreme one, to partner with the perfected one, to partner with him who is leading, leavening, changing the entire globe. Take the bread with me. Let's say it together, Father, I receive this divine partnership with the victorious Jesus. I welcome your rule and your reign in me and through me. I welcome the power of the Spirit. I welcome the hope of his victory. And I receive that you've made me one with him. Jesus is my champion. Jesus is my champion, and this bread represents his broken body for me. This cup represents his shed blood for me, and I receive what he's done in Jesus' name. Take the bread. Take the cup, and let's sing it again. You are my champion. 